0: Welcome to Fade Out, the podcast that examines the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, Rob Kelly. For this episode, our subject is producer-screenwriter Joan Harrison. Born in 1907 in Surrey, England, Harrison always dreamed big. In 1933, she basically talked her way into a job as a secretary to no less than Alfred Hitchcock. In just a few short years, Harrison would go from secretary to assistant to a co-screenwriter on Hitch's films Jamaica Inn, Rebecca, Foreign Correspondent, Suspicion, and Saboteur, racking up two Oscar nominations along the way. Along with Hitch's wife, Alma, Joan became an essential component of Hitchcock's filmmaking team. Despite the success, Harrison always dreamed of more. She left Hitchcock's purview and established herself as one of the very few female Hollywood film producers, while also using her considerable skills as a writer on the scripting side. Harrison's first film as producer was the film noir classic Phantom Lady, starring Flinchot Tone and Ella Raines. She then helped bring forth films like The Strange Affair of Uncle Harry, Nocturne, They Won't Believe Me, Ride the Pink Horse, Eyewitness, and Circle of Danger. She then moved into television, producing 39 episodes of Janet Dean Registered Nurse, starring Ella Raines. She then re with Alfred Hitchcock to become associate producer of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, becoming full producer two years later. While Hitchcock, of course, appeared in every episode and consulted on scripts, casting, and other details, in many ways it really became Joan Harrison's show, and she would go on to work on every of its 200-plus episodes until it went off the air in 1965, helping cement Alfred Hitchcock's now iconic status. After moving to Europe, she kept her hand in producing, shepherding the anthology series Journey to the Unknown. Now happily married to novelist Eric Ambler, Joan settled into the life of quiet retirement after producing the TV movie thriller, Love, Hate, Love, starring Ryan O'Neill and Leslie Ann Warren. Joining me to discuss the remarkable and often overlooked career of Joan Harrison is the author of Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, the forgotten woman behind Hitchcock, Christina Lane. Hi, Christina. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I will admit I had not heard of Joan Harrison much at all until I read your book. And, you know, you get into that in the book a little bit about how despite, you know, the reams of paper written about Hitchcock, uh, her name comes up relatively, you know, almost not at all. And, and I, you know, I've read a bunch of books on Hitchcock. I saw the movie Hitchcock. You know, I've seen a bunch of documentaries on Hitchcock. And, you know, you're right. <laughs> she doesn't come up a whole lot, which is kind of amazing considering how important she was to his career early on when he landed in Hollywood. So you know, we're going to talk about Joan's career. We're going to talk about her films. Um, you know, Generally, the show focuses on the last film. This one's not going to be not so much on Love, Hate, Love, although we will talk about that. We're going to talk about Joan's whole career. But before we even get to all that, I want to ask you, how did Joan Harrison get on your radar and how did you end up deciding to write a book about it?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of Hitchcock, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to slight um, Hitchcock or, or Hitchcock fans by any means, I just love to fill in the picture a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I have to give credit, I guess, to one of my, my professors in, um, in film, I was taking a Hitchcock class and Professor Tom Schatz at the University of Texas at Austin knew that I was interested in women directors and women writers, and he pointed me in the direction of Joan Harrison. So I went into the archives there and began looking at her script files and realizing, you know, just how much of a, of an impact that she had had, but that was like in the mid 1990s, you know, and um, that just opened up an entire world into how many women there were that were collaborating with him all through his career, you know, including Alma Revel, his wife, whom I'm sure that we'll, we'll speak about, but so many women writers and even art directors, right? I mean, they're actually, when you begin to look at the number of women that were really influential and um, important in terms of shaping his films and their themes and their look, I think actually a lot of women have gone, gone un, unacknowledged or underappreciated. It's just that she had such a long, you know, kind of career um, span in terms of coming in in the mid-19, or like early to mid-1930s and then working with him all the way through the mid-1960s.
0: Why do you think that uh, she in particular was is sort of so overlooked? Is it because of historians love to kind of do the great man story? You know, it's one guy that shepherded all this and it's just an easier story to tell, that it's one guy was such a genius and, mm-hmm. it, you know, as opposed to getting into the well, there was a whole team of people around them.
1: I think that's a huge part of it, is that it's it's so much more complicated to begin to talk about, you know, the collaboration the collaborative mode of the hollywood studio system and you begin to have to think about all that went into movie making whereas it's such an easier narrative to just talk about hitchcock you know what was hitchcock thinking when he made you know north by northwest or something and you can attribute it all to that to that genius it's so romantic to think of him as coming up with all of this you know himself and um and so it is easier and a lot more i think he helped to write that narrative right he hitchcock <laughs> created that mythology around him as he was kind of you know hitting his later stage in his career he began to write this history that um wrote other people out particularly writers for whatever reason he really didn't want to give credit to writers and particularly women so um and then i think the other thing is i mean oddly enough Um, Of the various people that did get credit, it was Joan Harrison that just seemed to really get, you know, written out um, and invisibilized more than anyone. So there are people that um, that Hitchcock was kind of bringing along with him and would really point to as far as being important to his career. But for whatever reason, I think he was reluctant to, you know, he really liked to have her as the secretary and as the assistant and as the woman on, you know, on his arm. Um, or nearby at parties. And so he wanted to keep that image of her as, as the beautiful blonde, but not Mm -hmm. as so central in terms of um, producing, you know, his films, which is, I think her main role, as I talk about in the book, was really more even as a producer than as a writer. And that, that was difficult for him to, to, to promote, right? Because he, he wanted to be the center of attention.
0: Do you think it was, I mean, it's hard for you to put yourself in the mind of Alfred Hitchcock, obviously, but he, in, I mean, he was obviously very comfortable with letting his wife mm-hmm. uh, influence his creative decisions. And he, from what I understand, gave great credit to her.
2: Yeah.
0: Was it just that because that was his wife and they obviously have a very different dynamic than, than he had with Joan Harrison and that, yeah. that made it easier to kind of just, well, Alma helps me, but that's, that's it. Everybody, um, Mrs. Hitchcock does, but everyone else is just kind of my you know, glorified secretary.
1: Yeah, I think so, and you know what? I think you're asking a really good question because um, even though we didn't know, right, audiences like contemporary audiences, we're still coming to the realization that Alma Revel, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Alma Hitchcock, was um, was so important. Um, Hitchcock always gave her credit and was not so reluctant to to put her in the spotlight. She, Alma Revel herself, always wanted to kind of step behind you know, right behind the shadows, and she she was reluctant to give interviews and didn't really want to take a lot of credit. But I think that Hitchcock was very comfortable giving her credit because she was in the movies before he was, you know, so um, she was, you know, she began like when she was 16 years old in the British industry, and then he met her as he was coming along. And so it felt very natural for him to point to Alma and say, you know, I owe so much to her and she really brought me along and we're partners because that, that was a good, like that was a narrative, you know, that fit for both of them and it was romantic, but it was also, you know, it was very true in the sense that I guess when Joan Harrison comes along, she actually really throws a wrench into, into their marriage. <laughs> Too right. So she really complicates their um, creative partnership and their um, and their marriage. And so I think that it it made it more difficult for Hitchcock to keep shining a spotlight on a spotlight. A spotlight. I'm sorry on Joan Harrison, right? Because it would um, it would actually make things difficult or a little bit more difficult for Alma Revel as well.
0: Do you think it was? Uh, I mean, one of the early sections of your book that I was I found so remarkable is that, that when you describe how she got the job with mm-hmm. Alfred Hitchcock uh, where, which she basically just bs's her way into it, which is kind yeah. of amazing. And, you know, you, you describe very, you know, very uh, in detail, her background and the fact that, you know, she came from this, you know, this town in England where everyone's dreams were sort of pragmatically defined you know, and yeah. she was the one who's like, no, I'm going to be in the movies, which is kind of like saying I'm going to go to Mars. You know, it's just <laughs> like what the?" you know, where? and it's so funny, like when I read the book, it I don't, depending on your belief systems and, and sorry, I'm going down this weird alley. But it almost like if, if there's ever if you ever had a belief in reincarnation, I feel like a Joan Harrison is a great example of that because you're like, where did this come from? You know what I mean? It's almost like she was she must have been Joan of Arc in a previous life. And now, you know, and now now it's manifesting because she just had such sort of confidence of like, I'm gonna go do this. I'm gonna go lead a life completely different than my family's, yeah. my my siblings. I'm gonna go off and do this thing and sort of travel the world. And she did it. She yeah. you know, she yeah. did it. And so yeah. when you were when you were writing the when you're writing the book, was there a lot of Was was there like a big paper trail for you to to pick up on? I mean, as you talk about Hitchcock, there's a thousand documentaries, there's a thousand books. He himself obviously was very focused on cementing the legend of Alfred Hitchcock. But was there, how hard was it for you to find material on someone who was constantly sort of pushed out of the spotlight?
1: It was very challenging, you know, and she, as adventurous of a life as she led, she didn't think of herself as being that important, you know, so she didn't keep much in terms of documentation and she didn't donate um, any papers mm-hmm. to an archive, right. She, there were no Joan Harrison papers. And so, and she, um, while she didn't have offspring. She did have a niece um, who's still living, but the niece didn't really keep much either. I just hate to say it. Right. And so that was pretty painful to find out um, that the family was not keeping a lot of, of say you know letters or diaries or you know correspondence and so and so you know the truth is that as i would find things a lot of it is the kinds of papers or um documents that you would find on say ancestry.com you know things that are publicly available um or in certain situations pockets of letters that um you know someone had kept you know like evelyn keys right who's who we know is say, um, the sister, right, Scarlett O'Hara's sister in God with the Wind, but she also played a lot, as movie fans know, a lot of roles in various movies all through the 30s, 40s, and through the 70s, but she was someone who had a lot of correspondence with Joan Harrison, and there are a few others like that who I could find um, lots of letters, so they brought Joan Harrison alive, but they also helped me figure out where she was living, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, over the decades, or... Who she was having relationships with, but um, it meant that it was a bit of a detective, you know, kind of journey for me. I became a bit of a detective trying to find <laughs> out who who she was, and there was a lot of I don't know. I I just found a lot of I, I ended up being coming. Um, really, it was a ton of fun turning stuff up, you know, turning over these rocks and figuring out exactly who she was and what kind of. Um, just kind of what her journey was, because I think initially, the idea was just to write a book about her career, you know, kind of going film to film, um, trying to find out some industry information and go into the studio archives. And then once you find out, as you suggest, like what kind of a person she was, there's no way you can only write the career, you have to write her a bit of her life story because of what an interesting person she was.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I would imagine uh, being, and we'll get to some of the films specifically shortly, but like, I would imagine being a movie producer at being a movie producer, period, really hard job. Right. You know, unless you're David O. Selznick, you know, or you know, you're someone whose name is so huge that, you know, you drive the process just by the mm-hmm. sheer heft of your name, that stuff's going to get done. Um, and There's modern versions of that now and stuff, but like, when you're, you know, for her to go out on her own, even having had the success she had with Alfred Hitchcock, I mean, being nominated for two Oscars yeah. is unbelievable. That's that's yeah. an unbelievable success. But just the sheer kind of, you know, mental and emotional heft you have to have to push these things forward mm-hmm. uh, is just remarkable. And again, that, yeah, that that initial stuff. Uh, I will admit, when I read a lot of um, film biographies if they start you know with like the grandparents i my eyes kind of roll over i'm like i don't care about the grandparents get to the you know get to the movies but with this particular story yeah it was to me really vital to learn who this person was and just see how sort of indefatigable she was and then it makes sense for her to say okay i've been working with hitchcock and that's an amazing success but now i want to go off and do something else right. when you were when you were researching her and again, we mentioned the films that she co-wrote uh, involving with Hitchcock and other writers. Do you get the sense that like producing was something she kind of always wanted to do, and screenwriting was the way in or screenwriting maybe wasn't as satisfactory like do you, do you feel like she was a writer who wanted to produce or she was someone who just found her way into producing and was like oh okay this this is this is a new path I can take
1: right, right. I think it probably was the latter you know that in terms of um she was, I think that initially she saw herself as a writer and somebody who really was drawn to story, right? Because mm-hmm. she was such a reader growing right. up. She was, right, she was really into literature. And um, and of course she did like modern language, you know, essentially the classics. When she was studying at Oxford, that was her, her big thing was to study languages and to do more kind of literary-based um, things. And I think there was a point at which she was trying to get get a go right at writing and, and um, short story writing like all by herself in London and that that like after three months that petered out so I think she thought she had um, fantasies of herself as as a writer but the truth is that I don't so she, in other words she never knew that there was such a thing as producing you know mm-hmm. even as um, when she was working with Hitchcock I don't think that she understood what that job was but then mm-hmm. She ended up um, doing those kinds of duties, right? She ended up doing those producerial, um, like, responsibilities. And all of a sudden, there she was, like, producing movies. And that was just such a natural thing for her. But that's because her personality was so – she was dogged. You know, she was – you know, in other words, I don't know that I would really want to go to dinner with Joan Harrison. Like, I mean, I would, but I also wouldn't because I think she was a very, um, definitely very determined, definitely a bit stubborn and bullish. And so, you know, the, she's the kind of person that needed, um, that Hitchcock needed because he could also put her out in front and do some of his dirty work for her and he could still come off looking good. And also she could tell him no you know she could tell him the kinds of things that other people might not have the guts to tell him so she was she was a definite you know um people you know some people would enter would they would um give me an interview and they would give me some information and then they would actually call me back and i remember one person leaving me a message saying i don't think i really described her to you very well, like completely, you know, she was very feminine, but she was also very masculine and this whole male female thing kept coming up. But I think what they meant is that she could use all of these different tools in terms of, um, you know, personality traits. And that was partly like the producer in her was was pretty tough, you know.
0: I got the sense from the, again, from the book that, uh, you know, like her personal, you get into her personal life a little bit here and there about who she was in relationships with and and stuff like that. But I always got the sense from, again, from reading it that like that's, that was the kind of thing where it was obviously if she had met someone before Eric gambler that she had Mm -hmm. really fallen in love with, she probably would have stayed with them, but it didn't, I didn't get the sense that she was thinking like her, her career or just her creative expression was so important to her that the relationship part of her life was sort of like, well, if I can fit that in great, but if not, that's fine. Yes. That was sort of the read I got from, which again, for, you know, a woman in 1944, pretty, mm-hmm. pretty unusual.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, 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 those times too, I think women, um, right. They were, they were also choosing, you know, some of them, I mean, except for movie stars who could probably figure out how to make it all work. A lot right. of times if you were a career woman, you were kind of like, you know, choosing between, um, career and marriage. And so, I've heard this from other um, women who would say, "Well, you know, once I decided to become, you know, a, a really high-powered attorney, I knew I wasn't really going to be have much time for relationships." Right. You know, so that might have been part of her makeup. But I think you're also right that she just was so driven that, as you say, you know, if I if I find somebody, you know, I'll make time for them. But she wasn't finding anyone. Um, she wasn't really finding anyone um, that that was uh, that was really that was, that she found like more important to her, right. Than her career. Right. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Right. I got the sense that when she met Eric Ambler, I mean, he was obviously when she met him, he was already a successful novelist at that point that Mm -hmm. he could probably appreciate, you know, he was a driven person, a group driven, creative person, almost like he could appreciate like, okay, you know, I, I, I love this woman and we want to make a life together, but she's got her own thing and he can, appreciate that because that's he comes from that i mean not not that every person that's creative also can have an appreciation in someone else but i got the sense he did he was like okay she's gonna go off and do her thing i'm gonna go do my thing and we're also gonna be married as well it seemed like you know when he when when she meets him and i when i read the book i was like oh finally like she's (laughs) kind of meeting, you know a guy that is meeting her on her own level but respects her to say she can he yeah. knows she's going to produce movies because that's what's in her. To she's, she's just dying to do it.
1: Yeah, right. And he would give her her space. And um, I mean, she was definitely at the office, you know, to late hours of, you know, right, late hours of the day. And he he got it. I think that's true. She was, I think she was 51 when they married. So, you know, definitely he was, he needed to accept her on her own terms at, by that point. Absolutely
0: oh yeah i mean i'm I'm getting married in a couple of months, and I will be fifty one when I get married <laughs> a, you know you meet people at different ages, and you know we were joking about this uh at a party I was at a couple of weeks ago where we are talking about like meeting someone, and you know you at fifty one you expect them to have a life, but' time you've met this person <laughs> if they're the same age as you because if they haven't it's creepy and weird you know it's like <laughs> what are you been doing for <laughs> you know it's like you can't it's one thing when yeah. you're nineteen and you meet somebody but when you're fifty you're like, well I, yeah you we're each coming to this with a lot of experiences behind us because you hopefully have had a life to this point. It's the way it works. <laughs> right. um, so, of, of her films as a as a writer slash co writer, Jamaica Inn, Rebecca, Foreign Correspondent, Suspicion, Saboteur. At uh, least those are the Hitchcock ones. She also worked on her 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 films that she produced as well. Um, mm-hmm. I had not seen Jamaica Inn, and mm-hmm. I had not seen actually that was the only one I hadn't seen. I'd seen the rest, and then the rest I rewatched. Uh, do you have a favorite among the ones that she worked on as a as a writer?
1: I do. I mean, I, it's so, it's probably cliche, but I really love Rebecca. You know, and um, and I think actually, I you know years and years ago, I kind of came to Hitchcock by um, watching Rebecca. So long before I ever even knew about Joan Harrison, I just love the the way that that movie gets into the mind of Joan Fontaine and is so gothic. You know, and really takes you into the psychology of the character through the architecture of the house and Mrs. Danvers. is so, you know, well, I, I also think that you get into the relationships between the women in that film, right? Without even realizing you're all of a sudden there, you think it's about the marriage, but then all of a sudden it's actually about Rebecca and Mrs. Danvers and and the second Mrs. De Winter. So those are the reasons I really love the film. Plus it's beautifully shot, you mm-hmm. know, right? Right, the editing and the music and everything else. Um, besides the writing. So I definitely love that one. And, and as I say in the book, it, it looks like that's Joan Harrison's favorite film of mm. her, body, her body of work, too.
0: And one best picture. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it was it, – it, everyone considered it a massive success.
1: I had not seen
0: Saboteur for a really long time. Uh, many years ago when I worked at a video store, I went through all the Hitchcocks just to say, I saw them. I don't know how I missed Jamaica and maybe we didn't have it or something, but I, I had not seen Saboteur in probably 30 years. And I watched it over again uh, in preparation for this show. And I was like, wow, I'm loving that. Like I'd forgotten how good Saboteur was the way yeah. it sort of, it just, uh, all the pieces kind of just kind of fall into place as this, you know, the tension on this poor guy is getting ratcheted up further and further. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: I was like, I had, it was one of those like, boy, this is, I mean, it seems silly to me. It's a Hitchcock film. Of course, it's terrific. But I was like, wow, this one is great. You know, like yeah, I'd forgotten yeah. how much I enjoyed Saboteur. Um, and that, that says something about, again, we know that, you know, she was co-writing. We don't you know exactly how much of any given script is hers or her co-writers or Hitchcock's or getting rewritten on the set as they're doing. it. Although Hitchcock, as far as we understand, didn't tolerate that a lot. He really shot it. He had it all mapped down in his head and then he just shot it. But I, it's interesting that Rebecca is so much a, you know, it's a thriller. All those movies are thrillers, one extent or the other. But like as you talk about, it's a character piece. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. Saboteur is, I mean, yeah, it's a character piece, but it really is more like a plot-heavy movie. It's right. this scene, that scene. There's this fire. Who's this guy? We're gonna meet the. We're gonna meet the trainload of of, of carnival freaks. You know, it's and it, I think it's interesting that just in the space of just a couple of movies that she worked on with him she could kind of work on two films that had such different approaches. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you could do a character piece, but you'd also do something that's just kind of like a a fun plot exercise.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And those are really the two, right. The two different, I guess, formulas or brands that um, that we're developing with him, you know, through the thirties and into the like early American um, films in terms of that spy right, the spy thriller nice. plot that we see with Foreign Correspondent and Saboteur and, and prior to that. And then the the more, you know, kind of the, you have the female character who's at the anchor, who's, um, it's more about kind of her psychological, you know, crisis, right? <laughs> She's kind of coming into who she is. And, and, um, and I agree. I mean, for one thing, I think, I mean, the, those two different strands def- end up defining Hitchcock the way through his career Mm -hmm. he's right um leaning toward one or the other even though his films are often different and then the same thing for for joan harrison i mean she winds up leaning toward the kind of rebecca ish you know um like when you look at phantom lady and you Mm -hmm. look at even like something like um ride the pink horse oddly enough you know (laughs) um some of which we'll talk about but she winds up basically finding herself, I guess I would say, right? She finds her predilections in that period between like 1934 and 1940. But I say, so does Hitchcock. So their collaboration is really where they each find their most, you know, dominant interests.
0: Now he basically, I mean, you know, we know that he worked with David Selznick and other people, but Hitchcock, I guess you could argue sort of produced his own films and a lot, sometimes, sometimes literally, but sometimes just by probably, again, the sheer force of his personality. Do you get an idea of how much of that she picked up from him, just watching him in terms of how to put the elements together? Again, how to marshal it? I mean, you know, as I was saying earlier, it's one thing if you're this huge name producer, and just by the fact that you're producing the film, stuff's going to get done. But she didn't have that luxury, really. She had to probably kind of, like, really fight tooth and nail to get anything accomplished, because that's just, you know, they say, like, the, the, what's the axiom, like 90%, 99% of movies don't get made. You know, right. the ones that do get made are the 1%. Mm-hmm. You know, do you feel like she was able to kind of see what, you know obviously she couldn't be Hitchcock cause he was Hitchcock, but right. pick up some things of like, this is how I'm just going to push through to get this done.
1: I do. Yeah. And of course getting started with him in the British film industry is, is one thing that's really important, right? Is, is because everything wasn't as compartmentalized there. Everything was kind of um, done with, uh, you had basically control over almost every part of, right, every part of the movie making process. So she was able to watch how Hitchcock got, um, you know, kind of the development phase all the way through, you know, beyond production, but then editing and the post-production and the sound, right, and the marketing and, um, and just the way that things were, the movie was publicized So she understood, first of all, every phase of filmmaking and also how you could exert your control when it seemed like the film was getting out of your control. She watched him, you know, (laughs) rein everything in and probably make certain threats, you know, about how like the Hitchcock name would not go on the film unless, you know, certain things happened. So she could watch that kind of authorship uh, in process. Um, But I think the biggest, one of the biggest things for both of them had to do with censorship. And and um and and especially once um you get to the United States and America and, and um the Hollywood censors. And so she, you know, she came up against the censors much more um than even he did because Hitchcock had a certain sway, a certain <laughs> ability, um, certain power that she did not. But she'd gotten great training watching what he would do to basically get the kinds of things he wanted into a movie. Um you know, in terms of kind of transgressive themes or sexuality. And so she, um, just as, as far as producing movies, right, as a producer, if you want the the just the movie that you want to get made, you know, if you want to get it made, you have to know how to get around the censors or push through. Um, and also just kind of recognize that sometimes you just keep going. Like the censors are kind of going to step out of your way if you just push through.
0: <laughs> right. Well, okay. That's a- a perfect segue to talk about Phantom Lady (laughs) sublimated (laughs) sexuality, because I saw Phantom Lady again, back when I worked at the video store 30 years ago, and I didn't know anything about it other than, you know, I was like, Oh, it's a film noir. I'm interested in that. Um, uh, You know, kind of touching on my nerd comic book roots. There's a superhero from the forties called Phantom Lady. Mm -hmm. And, and there's no connection to these two things, but that title just simply caught my attention more than it, another one would have. Because I'm like, oh, is there Phantom Lady? Is that, okay, oh, there's nothing to do with it. And I remembered watching it, right? So we get to that scene. You know what scene I'm going to be talking about. The scene with, with yes. Elisha Cook Jr. playing the drums, which is so ridiculous <laughs> that I remembered. And for anyone who hasn't seen the film, by the way, if you haven't seen the film, go see it. It's terrific. You can rent it on, it's streaming. You can rent it at different places. It's on It's on DVD and Blu-ray and stuff. It's a terrific film noir, but it's really unusual uh, in its its structure, in its characters. But there's this scene where the Cook Jr. is in a jazz club playing the drums, and he's watching this woman who he is profoundly sexually attracted to, and he is pounding the drums in a way that even when I was 19 and I watched it and I was a lot dumber, I went, oh, come on. Like, you know, it was so, like, how did they get that past the censors at the time? Because anyone could pick that up about what, you know, it is, that scene is absolutely amazing. You, I mean, can you, you talk about it in the book a little bit, but like, yeah. how did they, how did Joan Harrison get that across Amen. the censors? Cause I mean, yeah. oh my God.
1: I know, I know. And and so, because, you know, there it's basically kind of simulating an orgasm, right? I mean, that's, yeah. right. I mean, it just kind of culminates in a way that is... He's sweating. Hard
2: ignore, right? <laughs> it's amazing.
1: It's like hard to ignore. And I think the thing is, I mean, I, I don't know exactly. She basically just continued to, to keep the scene, you know, keep the scene in, even though the censors were saying, we don't really think that this is appropriate. She just kind of kept, <laughs> you know, kept like sending the cut back to them. But the other thing is that they were so worried, I guess that in the, um, in the Cornell Woolwich novel, um, the drummer is, right, the whole scene is a heroin scene. Like he's addicted to heroin and it's like heroin, a den of, you know, of heroin users. And so she, um, by changing it to like, to marijuana, um, she was basically keeping this whole, the whole set of sensors distracted by this whole question of the drug use. And so they were, yes, they were worried about the drumming, but I think that they were so sillily distracted by the drugs that they were like, Oh yeah, whatever. You know, I, I can't imagine that they didn't see it as a problem, but they, they let it go. I mean, and maybe it was much worse, right? For all we know. Right, yeah. Was, maybe. It, yeah. Yeah. It was kind and I believe that's probably the case just from remembering the memos and letters back and forth. I think that she did, you know, say, okay, we will, lighten this up a little bit we'll tone it down a little bit but i can't imagine what that would have looked like (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah. i mean right i guess that's the whole like i've heard of that where where uh filmmakers will will purposely put in stuff they know won't pass so that's the stuff they can cut out when the censor says cut it out and then they could say hey i'm working with you i cut some stuff out even though they themselves never intended that to be in there
1: yeah so yeah
0: boy you can imagine what the deleted. (laughs) <laughs> frames are from that sequence of Elijah Cook junior just beating the drums as hard as he can and grabbing those sticks it's a yeah. very, it's such an unusual film because again i'm going to spoil it a little bit uh, for people who haven't seen it but like the, the you know the name of the, the main name in the movie is, is françois françois how do you say that françois françois french, uh, french, french show i think it's french, french show. show okay uh, yeah. i've never heard it actually pronounced that loud so françois but like he's the star of it he's the name of it and yet he's spoiler the killer Uh, which is kind of unusual for a thriller of that time that the, the by far the biggest movie star in the film, first of all, he doesn't show up until like a ways into it. And then he's the bad guy. Ella Raines is, and by the way, Ella, for anyone who was, Ella Raines is not the Phantom Lady on top of it. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's just, you know, it's like all this misdirection. uh, And so it stands really unique. And you, you know, from the paper, you said you found some of the papers, you know, why, Jo- I mean, we know that again from from your book that she talked about. This, she loved thrillers. Like that was just the genre she really loved. And of course, having worked with Hitchcock, it's natural that that would be something she would work. You know, that would that was the material that she'd be attracted to. Uh, in yeah. fact, I think it's only really once more, my darling. That's the only film that she produced that's not a thriller yes. in any way. I think from the from the notes and the papers that you saw, like you figure out why like why she was so attracted to this material. Was it just? that was her interest and that was a bottom line of like those things could reduce, you know, obviously could be reduced a little cheaply. She didn't have access to big stars. So, I mean, it was kind of had to be the material. Is that why she kind of went after all of the, you know, thriller after thriller?
1: Yeah, I think so. And, and, um, you know, she, she would say in interviews that she felt, you know, she really was interested in critiquing, like norms of the family and and like couples and romance. And so I think that under everything else, she just felt like a, a movie isn't worth making unless she can kind of, again, she wasn't interested in making message movies, right? It wasn't like, I want st- to, I want to out and out, you know, make some kind of message that th- throws families under the bus or something, you know, but it had to like speak to her in a way, just in terms of her, you know, she really, um, was driven to critique society, like societal norms, which for her, especially, I mean, especially once you get into the world war two and the post-war era, you know, she, I think she just really saw a lot to say. She was, that, that was what Noir was doing. Right. And so mm-hmm. it's almost like these two things come together at the right time. The, the tradition, like the tradition or the movement comes out right um, at this perfect time for her because that was her inclination anyway. And so she was drawn to the writers that were doing this work and the cinematographers, right. And the directors. And she was just, that's where she was spending her time. That's, she was going to lunch with them. She was going to parties with them. And this was just her world of like her creative and artistic world.
0: Uh, well, okay. There's a couple, there's a couple things I, I think about when you say that. Um, one thing is from your, from your book, when I was reading it, I, you know, you know, obviously sexism problem in Hollywood, problem everywhere. It's a problem then, it's a problem now, right. you know, uh, despite Hollywood's, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of like inch deep level of progressive, progressive progressivism, you right. know, uh, money run controls everything and all these other kinds of decisions. But like, I didn't pick up from your book that the, a lot of the people she was working with, because most of them are going to be men outside mm-hmm. of the actresses in, in, you know, in some cases, but like, I didn't get the sense there was a lot she got a lot of resistance on that front as being the producer right am I did I miss that the is that the you know the people she worked with did not regard her as a woman producer they regarded her as a producer that was it
1: right i mean so i think that for example the writers at, at a certain level right the writers and the directors i think the people that she was working with on a daily basis um at least from any evidence that I was picking up, did not see, did not treat her, you know, in a sexist way, did not see her, regard her, um, you know, in terms of like a power str- a power struggle. Right. But it was definitely the case that she wasn't given, you know, any time a film didn't do well or any mm-hmm. time she would, wanted to fight for an idea, the, uh, kind of that layer of male executives above her right. or the studio heads, you know, that's where she would come into this this issue where I think if she had been um, a man at any, you know, if if a man had been in her position, she could have um, fought and won, right? Mm. But she kept fighting and losing. And so that's where you see her zigzagging from studio to studio. So she's hopping from like Universal to RKO and then she leaves RKO. And that's partly... um, just a a result of the sexism in in the 1940s. And she would say, I mean, the other thing about her story that I think is so interesting is that she would actually just go to Hedda Hopper, right? Or she'd go, (laughs) she'd go to the newspapers and she would just say, look at the, you know, look at the male dominated system. I can't believe I'm, you know, I'm having to walk out on the stranger affair of uncle Harry is the best example Mm -hmm. of, um, you know, I can't get this, the ending that I want. And so I'm just going to walk out and, the actors were walking out, the direct, you know, Robert Sead wasn't actually going to, he didn't go back to film the final sequence because he didn't believe um, he didn't want, he was kind of, everybody was basically like boycotting that film, but she, but she was at the top and she was saying, I'm going to stand by my director and my actors and we all stand together. And that was um, just a really bold move because she knew that nobody had her back. Right. She had everybody else's back, but nobody had her back. And so in that case, she did go to the papers and she said, I think this is out and out, um, sexist. Like I was promised, I was given promises and, and here I am walking out, you know, with walking out on a contract and I don't have a film left. Um, I don't have options. So these are things that I really give her credit for because while she did bounce back, she didn't know she was going to bounce back.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it said if she's if she doesn't have this st- studio backing, yeah. she's putting it all out on the, on the line. And that's it actually was perfectly perfect segue because I wanted to talk about Strange Affair of Uncle Harry because it's her next film. Mm-hmm. I read your book before I saw the film, right? Mm-hmm. So and I you know, you get into the details of what they did to the ending and and I knew, you know, so I'm watching the film and I you know, I knew that there's like this tacked on happy ending, but I'm watching the, watching the movie and I'm kind of going I'm really enjoying it. George Sanders actually being sympathetic for once, which yeah. is unique. He almost always is like a complete jackass, you know, in yeah. his movies. He's always like this, this, you know, like sarcastic, nasty guy. And here he is. He's kind of sympathetic and I'm watching the film, right? And I'm going, okay, I know this happy ending is coming in because I read it in, in your book, but wh- how are they going to jerry rig this considering the way the film is going? And it almost is literally like, Everything is going one way and then, oh, no, we're undoing it in the last three minutes. The end. And I was like, wow. Like, it was really like uh, Poochie died on the way back to his home planet kind of thing. It was so <laughs> tacked on. And that, it, I mean, I still like the movie. Like, I was able to kind of just say, well, all right, that's the, the little tacked on piece. That I right. could just—it was almost like Nightmare Alley. The way the the, the Terrence Power Nightmare Nightmare Alley has like a tacked-on happy ending at the very end, like literally the last twenty seconds of that movie, and you yeah. can just kind of forgive it because it's like, well, that's the studio insisted on it. I still liked Strange Affair of Uncle Harry, but it mm-hmm. gets into what you were talking about of like she's not making message films. You know, it's not like uh, you know we're going to end racism with this movie. But right. that film is very critical of the family unit and the the limits that that puts on you which again i thought for 1945 seemed kind of way ahead of it way ahead of the curve
1: yeah definitely i mean that the you know the relationship between the brother and the two sisters is just really creepy you know and it's um especially (laughs) between especially between um geraldine fitzgerald and george sanders it's really sexualized and (laughs) it's really creepy um, it is it is and it's and it does um it just shows basically these undercurrents of the family that most films, I mean, there were films, there was, I guess, a whole cycle of films that were looking at kind of the Freudian, you know, kind of um, psychosexual relationships and the, and the ways that, that, um, you know, that relationships within the family are kind of repressing sexual elements that are always lurking beneath the surface, but she really went, I think kind of kooky with it, you know, and and she, and she really pushed particularly Geraldine Fitzgerald's performance. And, um, and then I I mentioned that there are these interesting things going on with costume. And then you have Ella Raines character who comes in as like the city, right? The woman from the city, from the outside and is able to cast a critical eye on what's going on. And so it becomes like a, a, I think a film with a lot more texture once you, I guess once you've seen it one time, you can go back and watch it again, mm-hmm. you know? And and, um, and yeah, I mean, I think Joan Harrison really had a lot, I guess I would say she wanted to do a lot, right? She had a lot of hope, right? And she had a lot that she wanted to do and say with that film. And it just began, it kind of began to fall through, slip through her fingers.
0: Yeah. How how was she able to, uh, again, like she, after this, she did Nocturne and then she did They Won't Believe Me, uh, which again, I'd seen, I'd, I had never seen until uh, I read your book. And I was like, oh, I want to check this out, which has a <laughs> bonkers, another movie with a bonkers ending, but in yeah. a good way, because it, that film feels like it's like, okay, we're just going to end this the way the story is pushing it. But boy, it, and any movie that ends with a character just jumping to their death. <laughs> Window. It's like bold move, bold swing movie. <laughs> I appreciate what you're doing. <laughs> how is she able none of these films, Stranger from Uncle Harry, Nocturne, They Won't Believe Me, Ride the Pick Horse, and we'll talk about Ride the Pick Horse too. But like none of these films are huge hits. Right. They were moderate hits, right? There wasn't there weren't any that were outright flops because they were all relatively small budget. But like right. how how was she just able to kind of talk her way into another contract another studio because you know is it just you let me why am i trying to all let you I'll let you explain how was she able to do that not having a giant hit to point to and say hey i could score another one like this one she didn't have that
1: right right i think that's true i mean she she was known for being very efficient and bringing a film in you know with days left to go um on the schedule and also with um you know if a film was was slated for $700,000 budget, she'd bring it in and still have like, you know, 10 or 15% left, right? 75,000. Right? Yeah. So she was really good at at um, saving money for the studio or showing that she was going to be quite conscientious. And I think that that saved her in a lot of ways. Um, an executive knew that they could hand her a project um, or even risk something, right? She would say, I really want to, right, I really want to adapt the Dorothy Hughes novel, you know, Ride the Pink Horse. And they would think, well, what do we have to lose? Like, it's probably going to do fine. You know, it's probably going to make us, and it would always make just enough, as you say, not a huge hit. It's not going to double the money that they um, invested, but it's it'll it'll kind of carry the studio along. And I think there, there were a few cases, I think Nocturne is one of them, where um Nocturne Gross was like one of the top three grossing films of that year for RKO. But that might not say a ton because, you know, RKO didn't have um huge hits that year, right? right, but, right. but right. But she could always kind of point to something and say, Look, I did, you know, my film was in your top five of yeah, the I made year. you
0: money. Yeah. I made yeah, you exactly. money.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're kind of like the A twenty four. Of, of the forties or they're, they, you know, they're, the the a four's biggest hit is the everything everywhere all at once. And mm-hmm. it, it's made 75 million. It's like, well, okay. That for them, that's huge money. So yeah. Ride the, ride the, <laughs> ride the pink horse. Mm-hmm. Is, is it the fact that they were, cause that title, I know yeah. it's, it's the name of the book and it's, it, you know, there's a scene, but they literally talk about riding the pink horse. So, okay. But I will tell you, uh, when I was, again, back, I keep referring to my video store days, but I, I can remember that film. We had it on VHS cause I remember the title, but the title just made me go, what? I'm not, what? Like that it's when you watch the film, it makes sense. But yeah. as a commercial enterprise, it's an awful title for a thriller. <laughs> yes. an Awful title. Was it just <laughs> because they were trying to figure the book and people, people like the book so let's yeah. just name it after the book. Is that why think, it stuck that title?
1: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They're writing on the success of the book. Although, okay. yes, but that doesn't make it a good idea. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, the book wasn't gone with the wind right. either. So, but I mean, yeah. but, so anyway, Ride the pick Horse. Um, I, again, another film I had not seen until, until uh, we did getting ready to do the show. That's mm-hmm. a terrific movie. That yeah, is an it? absolutely terrific. Robert Montgomery, Mm -hmm. terrific performance and obviously a guy who he himself was getting ready to kind of retire as an actor. I think he was kind of getting tired of this. He moved into directing and stuff like that. But um, that in watching all of her films, I love Phantom Lady, but I almost feel like ride the pink horse is sort of the pinnacle of her filmography as a producer. Would you agree with that?
1: I would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's kind of a tie between they won't believe me and ride the pink horse. But Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, for different reasons and I think that Ride the Pink Course should be shown more often you know at film festivals and retrospectives and it's, it get, keeps getting lost mm-hmm. and I agree I mean the um it's it's just very sophisticated you know it's a really sophisticated film it, it deals with the southwest in interesting ways you know it deals with um the theme of the frontier and then as you say like Robert Montgomery who's he doesn't always turn in a fantastic performance, but this you know this one is really strong, and lots of different actors actually are in this film that turn in great performances. Oh yeah you know and yeah, it's a really heavy heavy movie that's, but it's <laughs> but I mean but I, but but well worth watching like I'll, I'll watch it any time that it's on, you know
0: it it first of all film noir set in the southwest like right there like where that's an unusual setting you know as opposed yeah. to like the the urban jungle it's like okay we're going to put it out in the you know the dusty expanses of the southwest but um i think what i liked about it is that it is so he gets off the bus right the beginning of the film and it's uh, it's a bus i forget how he gets there yeah, i yeah, think yeah. it is a bus yeah he gets yeah. off the bus and it's the film feels like it exists in its com- completely its own world with its yeah. own rules. And it's like, you know, yeah, there's, yes, there's other parts of America that are cities and, 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 and modern life, but this is, it's almost like this might as well, like, I'm using the same reference, but it might as well be Mars. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's so yeah. strange and his interactions with all the characters, all the other characters. I, yeah, I thought it was really, really a fascinating movie and was it was that one a particular hit, or was that another one kind of like all right, it did some business, and then that was it?
1: Yeah, that one I actually believe was not a great, you know, was not a great hit. And I think you had exhibitors in those smaller towns, and you know, kind of in this in, in the east and in the south, Midwest that were were writing back into the studio and saying we can't do much with this. You know, our audiences are not <laughs> are not are not responding. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, um, and this was what, this was out of um, Robert Montgomery's, he had a production team, right? He had a production unit, Neptune Productions, um, on the Universal lot. And so that didn't do so great either, right? I think with this film's kind of lackluster performance, he didn't keep um, Neptune going very far either. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: She obviously had a great relationship with him because he's the star of Eyewitness, which she produced, Yeah. So uh, I mean, obviously they had a they they had a great rapport. They kept working together over and over again.
1: Yeah, yeah. So and that becomes something they do in Britain. Like basically, as the the nineteen forties wane and they go into like nineteen fifty, they find money in Britain to go do Eyewitness. Actually, right. so yeah. somehow they they do that. But I agree. I mean, um, they were. I think that they. have I mean, he was also in love with anything British, by the way. So I think he had an immediate, you know, affinity for Joan Harrison because he thought, oh, you know, just her accent, being around her accent probably. Sure. Made right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah, they worked really well together, and he, of course, had made um, Lady in, is it Lady in the Lake? I'm like Lady uh, in the Lake.
0: Yeah, the one, oh, Yeah. That's a weird. <laughs> that's
1: this another one. the camera is you okay
0: all right yeah
1: (laughs) but I think you know because he really wanted to experiment he had he was you know I think much more just in his thinking much more advanced about cinema you know and so she she did well with a partner as we knew with Hitchcock and I was I think she had high hopes that that would go kind of the way of her collaboration with Hitchcock given that that Montgomery really did actually think a lot about cinema. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't quite work out that way, but they did work well together.
0: Yeah. Now, again, obviously she had a great relationship with Ella Raines because she works with Ella Raines a bunch of times, Phantom Lady, Strange Affair of Uncle Harry, and then on Janet Dean, Registered Nurse. Now I have not, I've not seen any episodes of that show. I have not, I should have looked up on YouTube to see if they're available. Have you ever seen any of them?
1: I have yeah. I think there are like two episodes floating around on YouTube. Okay. Um, Yeah, and they're they're but they're not very good copies. So it's you know they're kind of jumping um, jumping around. I don't know if they're entire episodes, but you know it's a good show. I mean it's it's of its time in an interesting way because I think Ella Raines and Joan Harrison who. You know, Ella Raines was like the president of the production company, right? She had a she was, in terms of a producer's role, Ella Raines had a good deal of control. And then she brought in Harrison to also produce the show. So they had high hopes in terms of this being, it was the first television series with a nurse as the main character. Mm-hmm. And then the nurse herself was functioning as something of a social worker. So each episode dealt with social issues. Um, so it was very different early, like 1954 uh three, fifty-four. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so just in terms of its aspirations, it was trying to do things having to do with race and juvenile delinquency and, you know, poverty. So to our eyes, it's kind of cringy because it's not really that forward thinking. But I think in terms of what they were doing in their own context, it probably was quite for forward, right? Quite progressive. Oh
0: yeah, 1953. I mean, you know, the television is in its infancy. Now what do you think that it was that she got into television simply because it was obviously becoming, it was rising as a medium and the film, the getting the films made, was just sort of getting harder and harder. And it was just easier. Like, all right, let's try television. And like, it was like, she, she probably would have preferred to stay in films, but television was, uh, you know, a, I don't know not necessarily evil, but you know what I mean? Like, it was like yeah. this, this might be an easier way to, to get things done as opposed to the struggle of film production.
1: Right, right. I mean, so one thing that happens is, she. I think she would have preferred films, right, until she figured out that she was really good at television. <laughs> um, but one thing that happens is that by the 1948 and 1949, she realizes, number one, that she um, is really getting locked out of the film industry based on um you know she's kind of had like unfortunately i mean her film career only ran from say 1943
2: to 1947 48 yeah so brief,
1: very know, yeah. very yeah very brief but i think as hollywood goes <laughs> um, she had kind of run her cycle through and especially when you have the rise of you know like cold war and kind of the gender politics around the cold war era she was facing a rising sexism, like this, you know, mm-hmm. kind of increase in sexism. But then combined with what she saw as, as the blacklist, and so a lot of the people that she would associated with had been very left leaning, and so she was getting kind of grey listed. So she she saw that she actually had to leave um, L.A. and go to Europe. She lived in right. England for a couple of years, and 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 Europe, and so television was really the only way that she had back, you know into the industry. But um, so when Ella Raines gave her that in, that was um, a huge lifeline back into the industry actually. But then she saw that she could help other people and that's one of the things I talk about in the book is that she could actually help other people who'd been you know, much worse off in terms of the blacklist that she had, and helped them back into the industry.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, that's again, that's perfect. She she moves on to a show called Suspicion, which mm-hmm. produces thirty one episodes of that, and then she does a couple of a couple little one offs here and there. But then she reteams with Alfred Hitchcock for yeah. Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and I remember watching reruns of that show as a kid. And I watched the one in the eighties when they redid it. I remember watching those as well. And uh, but I've only I've only seen it kind of. Know, more than a handful but not the whole run certainly but then i went back again and i watched a, a bunch of them after having read your book and uh first of all i'd forgotten how really unusual some of them are
2: yeah.
0: uh you know and i guess it was that the the hitchcock name was enough to kind of like you know people were willing to go somewhere uh that a lot of other shows wouldn't get like the moment joseph cotton where he's paralyzed through the whole show like yeah. you know it's just all his narration and stuff like that for her, reteaming with him, was that, you feel like it was a bit of a retreat or was it a, hey, I went off, did my own thing. I kind of feel like I have nothing left to prove. Now I'm, this is a good time to, to reteam with friends. And as you talk about, give, be able to give work to actors that wouldn't be able to get work in other
1: places yeah I think she did i mean you speak about reincarnation, you know, and I think that she that she did see this as a new stage in her career that was really um a chance to kind of um a, another stage in terms of like rebirth right of her career and she um as like as I can reflect on it she was just so perfect in terms of um that, you know, this kind of television episode was perfect for her. She, because she was such a hard worker, you know, and the turnaround time, these are like two or three days in terms of shooting them, like rehearsing them, shooting them. And then, and then really two to three weeks in terms of actually getting the whole thing out. And so she loved that grind. Um, And she also loved the short story format, which tended to be the basis of most of these, you know, most of these episodes. So this was really meant, this was kind of the format that she was meant to to make, but it was only the 1950s that these began to be made. And so she kind of falls into her love, right? This this probably was her true love, but it comes along late in life. So this is wonderful for her. And I think in terms of reteaming with Hitchcock, I mean, she knew what she was in for, right? right I mean, yeah. In terms of... In terms of um, in terms of working with him, I mean, they never lost contact, as I talk about, you know, in the book. So, um, but also, I also mentioned that they almost recreate what they'd had in London in the 1930s, create a sense of home and a sense of family. And so I think in that sense, and they kind of bring a taste of of London and Britain into Hollywood. So it's great for her.
0: It was so fun to see uh, so many of the Hitchcock stable I mean he made so many films that he and he worked with so many people that you could say well he didn't have a stable he just worked with a lot of people but Mm -hmm. it was so great to see Joseph Cotton as I mentioned show up and Thelma Ritter you know I love Mm -hmm. Thelma Ritter and just all these actors that he worked with pop up in these episodes Uh, I was like oh you know they feel like little mini movies and you you talked about her ability to get things done under budget well Mm -hmm. that's I mean in terms of television production that's probably the number one consideration, Absolutely. Uh, you know, almost above the quality of it. It's like, can you get a ton for the money yeah. we're going to give you? And yeah, every week I got to say, it was so funny. I remembered uh, being a, a, when I was a, a kid and I would see in bookstores and there was that Alfred Hitchcock presents mystery magazine
1: yeah. that he
0: put his name on. Mm-hmm. And that magazine ran long past his life. You know, yeah. I think it, I, it might even still be around now, but it was around yeah. for a very long time. But I remember being a kid and seeing it and knowing that Hitchcock was dead and thinking, how can he? How? And that was the first inkling that sometimes people put their names on things that they themselves don't have a whole lot of involvement with. And obviously Hitchcock, as I mentioned in the intro, he's in every episode. He does right. the intros and, and you know, sometimes so the intros are great, he makes fun of his sponsors sometimes and things like that. Yeah. But it was really interesting again reading in your book that how much of it he handed off to to Joan and other people. Norman Lloyd was a big part of it. Like how much he just was like almost like I'll show up, I'll do big intros, and then you know you guys fill fill out fill out the rest. It's kind of an amazing trust to have in his coworker, not coworkers, his his uh, you know his fellow collaborators that he would yeah. put his name on something that in a lot of ways he didn't have a whole lot of influence on i mean obviously he could have had more influence if he wanted to but he really trusted them i thought that was amazing and you know the show ran for like seven years i mean it was a long run
1: yeah yeah it did it did and and you're absolutely right i mean i think that's a great analogy in terms of seeing the magazine you know on the stand long after he's gone and i think it does still it is still running and the the idea he used to hitchcock himself used to say right that um you know when he was a director in the 40s, you know, people, he was known as a director by some, but it was really the television series that made him a worldwide, like an icon. Yeah, truly the
0: only famous movie director of the time, really.
1: Yes. And like he would go anywhere in the world and people would say, oh my gosh, you're, you know, Alfred Hitchcock. And so it's that mass medium that did it. And it's the it is the brand you know it's the silhouette it's just coming out you and before before every um is the openings and the closings um before and after the episodes but you're absolutely right in terms of like he only trusted you know at first really joan harrison to certify what i say certify like the brand of the show and to know exactly what would make an alfred hitchcock episode um because she knew from decades before you know what made a hitchcock film
0: yeah. Yeah. I said it's, it was, it was really great fun to go back and, and revisit some of those, some of those shows and just how unusual they were. And just think again, as you mentioned earlier uh, with Rebecca Dean uh, or uh, yeah, what is it Rebecca? Um, Jane, Janet uh, Jean- uh, Dean registered nurse, uh, not Rebecca, yeah, Dean, excuse yeah. me. But, yeah. you know, some of these shows, you know, you watch me like, well, again, yeah, nowadays you can see the surprise coming, but in 1962, that was a big deal. You know, like that was like, wow, that must've been a hell of a twist. So yeah, it's, it's, I thought it was, I, I, you know, as I'm reading again, I'm reading your book and like, I'm rooting for her, you know, because it's like, I'm liking the stuff that I had seen to that point, And I want her to succeed. So when she gets a chance to kind of go back with, with Hitchcock and just be able to like, yeah, I can, I have my producing chops. And by the way, you mentioned the, the budgets. I almost think like, was she so crafty? Was she kind of like, uh, scotty on star trek where he was like always upping his his estimates for how long something was going to take to get fixed that way he could always make it you know oh, like you know yeah. i yeah. need 10 hours i'll do it in two you know like, like did she i wonder if she went to the studio and was like i wonder if i can sell them on seven hundred thousand. Right. if i can right. but i know i can do it for 575 but if i can sell them for seven then i look like a hero which yeah. is you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's really great. if she yeah, didn't yeah. That out That would be marvelous.
1: Right. Um,
0: so she moves. She's in England. And she produces some some stuff there. Journey to the Unknown and the Most Deadly Game, involving um, stuff with uh, Eric Ambler, and then yeah. her final film as producer is the TV movie Love Hate Love.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: and that's available on uh, YouTube. By the way, you can watch the whole thing. Um, was Love Hate Love always going to be a TV movie, or was it ever potentially going to be a feature film? And they, I don't want to say downgraded it, but it was, you know, was there, yeah. was there paperwork related to that?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think it was always going to be a TV movie. And to my knowledge, by that time, um, Eric and Joan were pitching a lot of things, you know, that they were um, doing themselves, but it was only to TV, I think, at that stage. So was it just it,
0: that it was just easier to get things made like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they didn't have the clout. Unfortunately, by the late 60s and early 70s, they just didn't have the clout, you right. know, to do anything other than television. Right, okay. Yeah.
0: But so of course, I watch... I'm
1: sure, I, 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 I guess the question is, because they, I don't know whether they had wanted that to be a series, you know what I'm saying? But I think it really was only a, a TV movie, because it's so encapsulated. I'm sorry to interrupt you.
0: Oh, no, 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 not at all, no. um So, yeah, I watch it on, on YouTube, and... um. I always have, I, I will admit, I always have like a slight biases about TV movies. I always feel like, oh, they're going to be a little cheesy. And my, my dear friend Amanda Reyes, fellow great podcaster, who's the queen of the, of the TV movies,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, she's written a book about it. She has a podcast about it, made for TV mayhem. She loves this movie. In fact, the only review I could find online of it was her review in her book mm-hmm. of this movie. So, but I went into it and I watched it, and I thought it was actually really pretty good. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I actually enjoyed Love, Hey Love. What did you think of it?
1: Yeah, I did too. I did too. And and you know, it stars Leslie Ann Warren, right, as the um as the female character who is kind of, she thinks that she's with a good guy and he turns out to be a psycho killer. Peter Haskell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> he has
0: got a screw loose. Yeah.
1: And, um, and Brian O'Neill is, I don't know if that's his first part or right. I think it's a very early part. Of her. It's it's, he did
0: it after it was released after love story. I don't know if he did it before love story, but yeah. it was released after. So, I mean, the network must've been thrilled with that because. Yeah. Yeah. It, he was a giant it, movie star by that point
1: giant yeah yeah and he plays kind of like um the guy that she's fallen in love with and then he all all of a sudden is is wrapped up in this terror right when her her ex comes back as a i think it's 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 a little twisted but anyway he's trying to save her from this from this um stalker right but i guess the thing is is that just in terms of putting it in joan harrison's own oeuvre if you can say she has one it um It's kind of depressing to me, only because you know it does become a bit of a stalker movie, right? Mm -hmm. With the woman, the woman is just kind of the typical victim, and she's not that much of a. um, She doesn't have that much action and agency in terms of like, right? You know that kind of investigate. I I always look for the investigative woman who's like a phantom lady, Ella Mm Raines, you know, character. And I feel like, boy, we've really come a long way, far far away away from that. On the Mm -hmm. other hand, it definitely. Is a movie of the seventies, the early seventies, like Joan Harrison has tapped into, um, the TV movie of the early seventies, where basically that that is the formula. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it's not to say. I mean, I think it is really a really well done, really well done. I mean, and it did quite well that week, right? I think it, it the ratings were were pretty. Time. Yeah, they said it was like
0: yeah. the, the number one thing of that week or something. And then they re ran it a couple of months later and it did really well again.
1: Yeah. Uh, which yeah. is
0: remarkable. Um, I do want to mention uh, Henry Jones is in it, the great cowboy actor, Henry Jones? Is, it plays uh, Leslie Ann Warren's father. I love him in this movie. He's actually, of all the characters, he's the one who gets the most up in Peter Haskell's face yes. about, you know, knock it off. You know, stop being such a effing creepy weirdo. Yeah. And I really like that. And there's that, that marvelous scene. Again, you know, it's a TV movie. It can't be super sexy. It can't be super scary because it's a TV movie. It's got to pass the TV, you know, standards department of the time. Mm-hmm. But um, there are some definite, like, to be very Hitchcockian sort of things to it. And I mean that, you know, in the most complimentary way in that, like, what she learned from him. That scene in the um, the baseball game. Where, yeah. uh, where, you know, he, contri- Leo, Leo Price, the, the scary stalker guy, contrives to get the baseball tickets and he's there with the, the father. And then he says, oh, I've got a, I've got a fiance now. And of course the father thinks, oh, well, great. Now my daughter's in the clear because this guy's moved on. And then you find mm-hmm. out the whole thing's a blind that yeah. she was hired. And I would thought, I, I honestly did not see that part coming. And I was like, oh, that's terrific. The guy, this is how much of a psychopath this guy is that he's hiring people. <laughs> To <laughs> to To hope that the father will slip and say something, which of course he does Right. Um, so yeah I you know it i I agree with you that yes, it's unfortunate that the the, the stalker character he kind of doesn't get defeated by Sheila or Russ,
2: he yeah, kind of gets right.
0: defeated by his own nutsery, like yeah. he's just so crazy <laughs> that eventually the cops sort of step in and, and he kind of defeats himself, but mm-hmm. i I enjoyed it, and it was better than I thought, and I sort of appreciated that like. I'm glad that Joan Harrison, at least in the ratings, got kind of managed to pull out one more winner at yeah. the end of her career.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and 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 what a long career it is, right? I mean, yeah. it's true, it's true. 30s and the uh, 70s, you know, that's,
0: a, that's yeah, a, that's a, you know, by anybody's standard, that's a long run in any career, let alone yeah. dealing with the vicissitudes of Hollywood. You know, right. she was able to get now was love hate love. Did she go into it, knowing this was probably it, or or not?
1: I don't think so, right? I think that she felt that she had more to go, you know, mm-hmm. and this was something she did um with Aaron spelling, so she had right. though she was living in London, she flew you know to l a to work for several months on this, so she probably thought she had more to go with Aaron spelling and then goodness knows why you know nothing else panned out but it is a a bit sad that she didn't do a little bit more in the 1970s
0: now she lived up until 1994 it wasn't like she passed away too you know shortly after love hey love so she had a full 20 something years to kind of look back at her career and reflect on it again Mm -hmm. you talk about this a little bit in in the book but like did you get the sense that she was proud of it or was it you know where there things where she was like, well, I wish I could have done this or that, or did she kind of was, was she able to look back in, in satisfaction and say, hey, I gave it my all, I produced some great movies. Obviously, in in by the '80s and '90s, some stuff's finally coming to home video, and some things are getting a chance to be reevaluated here and there. Um, yeah. I mean, nowadays, you know, they ride the pink horses on cr- the Criterion Collection for pizza eggs and things like that. But do you feel that she? kind of lived out her retirement years in satisfied with what she had accomplished.
1: You know, I, it's hard for me, you know, to say, I think if I had to speculate, um, I think she really turned the page on her career. So she probably was like, I feel that she was satisfied based on the conversations that I've had with the friends that lived on and with her, her niece that she really did feel that she had done a great body of work and she had her favorite films, you know, and she knew that even if um, people didn't necessarily know who she was, right. That she had done great work with Hitchcock, but the fact that, you know, by, by the late 1970s, she wouldn't talk about, she would say, Oh, that was way back in the day. That's the Hollywood (laughs) career. You know, I don't really want to talk about those, you know, those films and and that part of my life. And I, to me, that's kind of really depressing. Mm. You know, that she, she preferred to watch tennis, for example, she didn't, (laughs) I mean, I guess I could, I mean, some people could say, well, that's, that's not depressing at all. Like she really, truly had put all of that behind her and she didn't watch classic movies. That wasn't her, um, right. That wasn't on her menu. Mm. But, um, but I think to my, in my mind, I think it's, it is a bit sad, you know, that she wasn't reflecting too much on Mm. her, on her accomplishments. Yeah.
0: It is a shame that, you know, people, obviously, uh, of a certain generation, that they just can't live long enough to see so much of their stuff get rediscovered. You know? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, some of her films, I mean, again, I, I don't know why I'm mentioning the video story so much in this episode, but I can, <laughs> I can remember a lot of her films, we had them on VHS. I can remember that. But now, again, like I mentioned, Ride the Pink Horse is part of the Criterion Collection, and They Won't Believe Me is on Blu-ray. I mean, The Phantom ladies on Blu-ray and of course all the Hitchcock stuff. I mean, it's a shame that some of these people just couldn't live long enough to be able to see the, the this generation come in and really appreciate the stuff that she did. And to say nothing in the fact that someone wrote a book about her, I can't imagine she ever would have thought that was something that would, that would ever happen.
1: Right, right. I can't, and, you know, and I actually, I tell this story somewhere else, but you're reminding me of this story, which I, only because I believe that this would have been also her mindset, unfortunately, is, um, I went, I approached somebody when I was first thinking about writing this book, and he had been a writer on one of Hitchcock's movies, and he'd been a writer on Hitchcock Presents, you know, and I said, um, you know, I'm thinking about writing a biography of Joan Harrison. Would you mind telling me a little bit about you know your experiences with her? And he was just really super rude. And he said, "Well, why on earth would anybody ever write a book about her, right?" And so I'm sure that that is the that is, wow. is probably, yeah, yeah. You don't
0: have To be a dick about it, I mean, you I just say no. I mean, geez.
1: And I'm sure that you know that is kind of like the. You know, right? The running tape that probably isn't what's in her mind. I can only imagine because those are the writers that she was hanging out with. So, um, it is too bad. I mean, all those, video- I love actually that you keep referring to the video store because <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just, it's, it's, you know, I'm doing a movie, a podcast, podcast about movies. It's, it comes up a lot, you know what I mean? Yeah. But good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Because you know that her movies are all there and that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, one last thing I want to ask you about before, before we wrap up here um, again, I love the book. Anyone who's interested in film history and especially the forgotten kind of corners of film history should absolutely read this book and get it anywhere. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, the the cover photo. Where did you find that? Because that that photo of her in like a screening room is yeah. like the photo. Like of all, like you couldn't ask for a more perfect photo for the subject. Yeah. And in terms of and the the title, the fan, you know, Phantom Ladies. Was that in like her archives? Where did you find that photo? Because it is like the perfect photo for the for the cover.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that that initially appeared on the cover of a Vogue magazine in the 1940s. Oh, wow, it, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, when she was getting some coverage. So I found that, I think it was like Getty, right? I think it was actually a photo with um, that Getty had, but it was because she'd had a, a cover, a magazine cover with, with Vogue. So I agree that it captures everything. Oh, my God.
0: It's, <laughs> you were making the Joan Harrison movie, yeah. This would be the photo that you would have in the movie. You know, it, looked, it looks like someone made a Joan Harrison biopic and yeah. you took a still from the film. It's such a perfect uh, image, you know, <laughs> for for her career predilections, mm-hmm. you know? And of course, uh, you know, the title's got the double meaning of that, you know, she's kind of forgotten and stuff. And so um, one of the things I like to, to, to always reflect on in the show is like the legacy of the people we're talking about. And, you know, some of our subjects when it's in Orson Welles or Alfred Hitchcock, we did him in the first episode. Obviously, they have a long legacy because everyone knows who they're even people that have never seen any of their films. They know who Alfred Hitchcock is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the legacy of her, not only through her films, is from your book. You know, it's from your book. Without this book, I don't know how much people would really be, you know, other than diehard film fans would know. So thanks to you, you know, she's got this legacy, I think. And like I said, it was just an absolutely terrific read.
1: Thank you so much. That's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Yeah,
0: it was great. Anyone, again, you're interested in Hollywood history, go check it out. So um, that's going to do it for this episode of Fade Out. You can find all the back episodes of the show on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. If you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Networks, go to com slash Podcast. Um, so before we sign off, Christina, uh, where can people find you like out on the internets if they can? Where can they you know, when they learn more about uh, you as a, as a writer, uh, what, you know, is there places they can, they can
1: find you? The best place to go is my website, which is author Christina lane.com. And that's where you can also find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So thanks for asking.
0: Absolutely. So yeah, go follow all that stuff, everybody. So again, that's going to do it for this episode of fade out. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another fade out before you know it, but until then, we've reached the end of this particular script. So it's time to fade out. Our particular kind of television film is not as easy to make as people would sometimes think, because it's not just a simple crime thing. It also has to be a study in character. And the kind of story that Hitch most likes to make, which is a story in which innocent people get involved in something terrible, Uh, very often which they themselves have not brought about, but which just happens to them, requires character building as well as keeping the suspense going.